0: Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Rob Morley. He is one of the founders at the Fountain Partnership. Fountain and I worked together on a number of uh, little projects so far, and I suspect we're going to be partners for many years to come. I've been working uh, for, or I've known uh, one of his partners, Marcus Hemsley, for, I don't know, 14 years, something like that, since he was a whippersnapper just out of short trousers at university. And I spared the world from him becoming another bloody life coach. Thank you um, for doing that. It's my pleasure. Rob, welcome. <laughs> uh, lovely to be here, Marcus. Great
1: to see you.
0: Today, we're going to talk about a topic that I know is incredibly close to your heart which is neurodiversity and ADHD. And I really want to explore it as from every angle. And I really want people to be uncomfortable uh, in the course of this topic, because I think we've got to be honest. And we were just talking in the green room about the, uh, the critical nature of being able to be honest. I think radical candor Radical authenticity is something that is desperately missing. And as a result, what we're not finding is any common ground. All we're seeing is differences. I see this in politics. I see it in business. I see it. There's generally a need to overreact and overcompensate. And I suspect, as an ADHD um, experiencer, then you've got many stories to tell. So, would you mind giving us maybe 60 seconds on your? career history, and then a couple of minutes on what ADHD really is, because I don't really think a lot of us understand.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. So the 60 seconds on me, I did uh, philosophy at university, which um, hopefully might set us up well later for talking about um, honesty and ethics, Um, went pretty much straight into a sales role in property, probably the easiest sales role I had, but I absolutely loved it. It was um, commercial property sales, and I got as far as I could before I had to do the, the RICS exam and become a surveyor. I then went on to do recruitment, advertising, and sponsorship sales, a few other sort of sales roles, uh, ended up joining Fountain when it was about three, four months old with Marcus and Rebecca, who are my business partners, and I've been doing that ever since.
0: Wow. Okay. So let's talk about ADHD. First of all, what isn't it?
1: Well, I I think in order to understand ADHD, I think we just need to understand the umbrella term of neurodivergency, because I think it's definitely a term by now most people will have heard of. And it's important to understand that because I think people will have certain reference points in their head, which probably come from popular culture, possibly being in the office. But it's the concept that certain developmental disorders are simply normal variations in the brain. Right. And that the people who have these features, while they may struggle with certain symptoms and certain issues, they also have certain strengths. So it's not fair to say neurodiversity is tantamount to disability, although, you know, something like say dyslexia, which is the most common condition under this umbrella, is classed as a disability under the 2010 Act. But um, it's better to think that people who are neurodivergent simply may need accommodations. Um, at work or school can
0: you so, just clarify what you mean by the difference between neurodiverse and neurodivergent or are they interchangeable
1: um yeah ones are now and the others aren't so we so we can absolutely interchange them for sure right okay just wanted to clarify yeah no absolutely so so about in the uk at least and it's probably the same for the states 15 percent of the population are neurodivergent so it's quite a large number 15 percent uh, one five one five so the breakdown of that is roughly, you're looking about roughly 10% of the population are dyslexic. I think most people, you know, if you grew up, I would reckon even in the late 70s, 80s, you knew someone in school who was dyslexic. But things like autism, ADHD, which are, ADHD is about 5 to 8% of the population. Autism or sort of AST as it's known is about 1% to 2 So the reason there's a kind of variation between that 5 and 8% is because the psychiatrists and the clinicians are kind of extrapolating out, basically meaning that there are people who are, have ADHD and don't know it yet. So we've actually got quite a few people in the population and the workplace who have yet to discover they have the condition. So it might be, if we're lucky, that there's some people listening to that on the podcast who maybe recognize some of the symptoms and some of the stories we'll go through and want to look a little bit further. To talk about ADHD, um, it stands for Attention Deficit Hyperactive Disorder. And I think the hyperactive element, again, is probably a reference point that most people will think of. When I've talked to like my neurotypical friends and I say, what do you think of when you think of ADHD? They go, oh, it's the hyperactive kid in school. school, the kid that was troublesome and wouldn't sit still and kind of fidgeted. That only represents one part of it. So, ADHD. I have
0: thought they'd be the kid that was bored out of their brains.
1: Well, that's true, and that's that's why the the subtypes are really important. So, ADHD is a misnomer in the sense that there are three subtypes. There is there is the hyperactive subtype, the inattentive. Which is what most women uh, tend to get diagnosed with, and why they got overlooked in the 80s and 90s, because while while the hyperactive kid was getting all the attention, the really quiet, inattentive female ADHDers were ignored. And then you have combined, and that's what I am. So I am a combination of hyperactive and and inattentive. So that's a spectrum.
0: That's what they mean by the spectrum. So you're either hyperactive at one end inattentive at the other, or somewhere in the middle, you're combined and you're a variation of, uh, or a mix of
1: along that spectrum. Exactly. These different sort of symptoms that we're affected by, you could put hundred ADHDers in a room, and let's say you wanted to measure each of the different core symptoms and give it a score out of one, and te- uh, one to 10, Everyone would be different. So, it, you know, for me combined, out of the sort of 12 or 13 hyperactive symptoms, I've maybe got six. In inattentive, I'm more like seven or eight. But right. you know, okay. I- so
0: th- this then speaks to uh, there must be a pattern, some structural difference in neurodivergent brains that neurotypical brains don't have.
1: Yeah, no, ex- exactly right. So just to say that the reason ADHD doesn't work as a title, and I'll talk, I'll just briefly talk about the neuroanatomy in a second, is. You can imagine, like you know, little Bobby isn't paying attention at school, but when he gets home, he plays seven hours of Xbox. The parents come in and they say, oh, "We think he has an attention deficit problem." And it's like, "Well, he plays seven hours of Xbox, so like, what exactly is the problem here? He's got plenty of attention, and that's because what ADHD actually is is a an executive system fault. So at the front of the brain, you've got, I think, four lobes. They make they make up the neocortex the frontal lobe is basically responsible for the executive functions so there's five of those the one that we all know is is basically the it's the highest executive function so it's planning problem solving simulating responses that that's the one that we all know from from school days it separates us from the primates fantastic the other four are being able to emote to yourself being able to speak to yourself so you see kids do this you know like little toddlers you'll see them always chatting out loud and then when they get to maybe six or seven they start to when they're trying to work something out they may be sort of hush because they understand the difference between speaking aloud to the external world versus themselves hindsight is the fourth one and then the last one is stopping which is a really funny one but if you think about it being able to stop what we're doing is actually really important, and again, kind of like separates us from the animals. That is fascinating.
0: Just one thing, can you define yeah. what you mean by emote yourself for people who are not familiar?
1: It's basically being able to, to understand your emotional state and like interpret it, interpret how you're feeling. So, you know, I, I am sad, angry, so on and so forth.
0: Right. So, is that a rationalization of an emotional state, or is it just understanding and being in the moment of being happy, or angry, or sad?
1: It's a good question. I don't know. It's a good question. Okay.
0: okay. If anyone does know who's listening, please step there right in because both Rob and I would like to know. Uh, I'm speaking for Rob. I'm
1: guessing he would. Um, uh, <laughs> well, yeah. No, I, it's it's an interesting point. Like emoting to yourself. Yeah. I I don't know the the depths of where that goes. I mean, let's say that. ADHD people, it's kind of considered that some someone, a clinician in the field said, look, by the time you're thirty, you kind of hear the number twenty-five that the brain is fully formed by age twenty-five. He said, in terms of the executive system, it's more like thirty, and he said ADHDers are typically thirty to forty percent behind in kind of in 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 relation to this. So again, you can't say it's specifically in one area; it, it sort of depends. So. I think one feature that all ADHDers do share, even if they have like a different symptom sets with sort of different intensities or expression, is something called time blindness. And this is something I suffer from. So it's the, it's the ability to kind of plan a morning in my head. So in order to be here to see you, I needed to leave the house at 9am. So I, I had to message that to myself last night. And my girlfriend had to remind me to get out of the house. Otherwise, I, I just see sort of you know time as this sort of uh like vague concept if that makes sense Um, well
0: it does in fact um i did quite a lot of research into this because i have a real beef with the universe at the moment uh, and i have done for quite some time because my years seem to flash by like months and my weeks like minutes um And I tried to get someone to help me slow my perception of time down. And sadly, I was a poor subject, I suspect. Then I started to learn about the different ways that people perceive time. Mm. And do you perceive it in a line that goes through you, uh, from behind you to uh, forward in front of you? Or do you see it as a line that goes from side to side? And is that slightly in front of you? Does it run through you? Does it run behind you? Some people have a spiral for time. It's really fascinating. There's a whole body of work by a guy called Robert Dilt around timeline therapy. Very technical and not terribly accessible, but it is uh, an interesting area. And then also look at the difference between how Orientals and Anglo-Saxons in particular and uh, Greco-Roman cultures perceive time.
1: Yeah, I was going to say that the the cross-cultural piece on that is probably really interesting. I think that sort of, you know, backwards and forwards line kind of makes sense. Like, I I actually remember being in the car many times as a kid and thinking the past was behind me. I'd look out the back window Mm -hmm. and think, oh, the future's coming. And it was sort of easy to imagine that because of the way the car moves.
0: But a lot of people have very different perception of time, which is why, uh, again, when you're trying to establish in the sale whether people have a deadline or a timeline, then. It's important to clarify because very often you might be thinking it's a deadline, and actually they're thinking it's more of a journey. Yeah, that's and (laughs) so it's a a series of little destinations. But they're probably thinking six months beyond you, and you're thinking, "Oh, let's get on with it." Because I I have this uh, challenge uh, often because when we say that we're going out. I think that we're going out. I don't think that we're going to have to take 97 minutes to get ready and do all the other things and then make phone calls. And when you drag me out of bed, get going. Um, But anyway, this is why Attachment and uh, me aren't best friends. (laughs) (laughs) I'm amazed that they still live with me. But anyway, okay. So let's just dig into a little bit more around the leadership data on this because I'm very interested because a lot of the people that I know who are in quite senior positions, let's face it, they are a bit anomalous, let's say that, a bit different. How many leaders actually have neurodiversity?
1: So, So in looking at the data of this, what I wanted to find was some data from sales and marketing. The marketing data was easier to find. And it's really the, the marketing data that sort of tracked from the under 24s up to senior leadership. And what was interesting about it is that we found that neurodiverse professionals overachieve at a younger age. But then that that effect tends to dilute as you kind of get to the older age ranges. There might be some like obvious reasons for this. And it could be that there, there are some really effective neurodivergent leaders, like in the over 50, 55 category, but it's just they maybe haven't had the diagnosis and they haven't had the support and they're not like an overt statistic, right? And that the people that are excelling in that sort of under 25 to 34 category, they're millennials. And so they, they've they had more support, they've had those accommodations, maybe in school and work. So therefore they're, they're sort of able to, um, um excel. And that's what the data found is that they are excelling beyond their sort of neurotypical counterparts.
0: So what does that bode for the future for them then? If they've if they have an advantage to start with and they've got the support, presumably that advantage is cumulative.
1: Um, yeah, you you'd like to think so. However, however, we'd want to break that down. That's the bit that's missing is if we're saying uh, neuro neurodivergence are excelling. Which neurodivergence is it? The ADHDs, is it the dyslexics? I'd say. So the interesting thing about ADHD, you often find that ADHDs on paper can look like job offers, but I think part of that is they get bored, and and I think you'll tend to see that with the with the hyperactive ADHDs, and it's interesting that all the all the um, entrepreneurs I know with ADHD are absolutely hyperactive, and and some of the. Some of the behavioral traits you'll see in that, these are the people that are always on the go, but it's almost like they're driven by a motor. You know, they talk excessively. They have difficulty waiting their turn. They interrupt. They're kind of restless. They're on to the next thing. So it's interesting that the stressors and and what running a business throws at you can suit a certain percentage of those, and possibly it would suit them at the C-suite level. But would it suit them in something like a corporate, where maybe it's a bit... I don't know, could be a bit stagnant, a bit samey, right?
0: Interesting. I mean, you you definitely see it in owner-managed businesses. You definitely see it in businesses that have people who appear unreasonable, but they're quite visionary jobs, Um, Gates to some degree, Zuckerberg, Musk none of them seem to be your normal, everyday, run-of-the-mill, fit-in uh, with the rest of society. They would have been those people that would have stood out.
1: It's interesting that ADHD and autism share some, some symptoms. You will find, I can't, I can't remember what the stat is, but it's quite large that something like 20 or 30% of people with ADHD will have another neurodiverse condition. I, I don't, I, ju- I just have ADHD as far as I'm aware. But it'd be interesting if you get that blend of the, the autistic traits, so that, that kind of being able to focus on a, on a big knowledge set, a big data set, be obsessed with it, go deep on it. But at the same time, have maybe the, um, hopefully, the, the awareness, the communication skills that sometimes lack with someone who has pure autism that you might find on the ADHD side and that kind of hyperactive drive. And you put those sort of traits together, in the right combination, as we were saying earlier. And yeah, you you could have someone who's quite a devastating leader from an effectiveness point of view. Well,
0: I'm thinking where one of the most interesting parts of my journey over the last two, three years has been really trying to understand how to put together very diverse teams to look at the same problem and uh, to solve the problem uh, in the right sequence. So have people who are visionary and innovators who can join the dots and create the bridge across the chaos, have people who can lead and drive that process forward, have people who can put order and structure in place, have people who can create a a safe environment where the best qualities are brought out of people and the worst aren't allowed to, uh, to materialize because there's no need for it. And I think one of the interesting things that we were talking about in the green room, but I sus- uh, has evolved or morphed since uh, this conversation began, is that people who uh, experience ADHD have a gap, a something that seems to be missing. And you mentioned it was a dopamine, you just don't get the, the dopamine hit. So I'm guessing that there is probably a tendency towards self-medication to fill the gap towards addiction because that obsessive personality is also likely to find ways of assuaging it and trying to tone down uh, either the sense of emptiness and fill it or to just level it down so that you can just switch off.
1: Yeah, that's true. I think I'll admit that historically I saw If I had to sum up ADHD, I sort of classified it as a a low dopamine state. But I I think after reading more and understanding more neuroscience, I I feel that that is a bit reductionist. However, it is fair to say when you you sort of try and measure these things that, yeah, people with ADHD, the reason they chase novelty and sometimes can, I think basically it's a 50-50 split. 50% of people with ADHD will have some form of addiction, substance abuse problem in their lifetime. 50% won't. So arguably, that the 50% who don't possibly go on to find novelty and get those dopamine hits through excitement, through maybe sales positions, yeah. through entrepreneurship, exercise. yeah, exercise, th- things like that. Now, w- one of the interesting traits about people with ADHD, which I didn't mention and I should, is that a signature, a kind of hallmark of the condition is hyperfocus, and people get very excited. and Books have been written about how you how you can make use of this hyper-focus. But there's a bit of bullshit in that because you can't choose hyper-focus. So I'll give you an example. I remember one weekend, I I ordered this business book on Friday. I can't tell you what it is. And I thought, well, that's going to turn up on Saturday and I'm going to read that, I'm excited. And Amazon suggested a book to me which had nothing to do with hobbies, interests, and it was a book about performance-enhancing drugs and sport written by a biochemist. I ordered that and I read that instead. I suddenly became really hyper-focused on performance-enhancing drugs never done them, never competed in top level sport. I know a shit ton about that subject. That's hyperfocus. I lost a weekend to that. So some people, if their hyperfocus is their business and they're always on, they're there working nine or 10 at night, they can't stop. But what will stop them is some form of burnout cycle. Then people are going to look at that and go, well, fucking hell, this hyperfocus thing is great, isn't it? Your hyperfocus could also be cocaine right? So, uh, you know, you, you kind of end up in that other 50%. And um, yeah, you, you know, you, you kind of end up like maybe some addicts that the choices are death jails and in institutions.
0: That's heartening. <laughs> so, well, it, it,
1: I think once you get down that slippery slope, and you don't admit that you have a problem, they are pretty much the options unless you get sober again. So it is a bit sad and a bit sort of a low point. But that, that's the reality of it. I'm afraid. So okay.
0: Um, so let's look at neurodiversity and conditions like ADHD. Let's look at them from the gift perspective. Mm, What's the yeah. gift of ADHD? Or what are the gifts that it brings?
1: Yeah. So I think I think it's fair to say people with ADHD can come across as driven. I think I know all the ADHD as I know. And they come from all different backgrounds, different genders. We have a strong sense of justice and honesty. Like we can't sit back and not sort of call out crimes, dishonesty, bullshit. Creativity, I think, big picture thinking, I think is 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 definitely part of the condition. And again, it's how it's expressed. So, you know, you meet ADHDs in the working world, they're expressing that creativity uh, more likely at work. But you know, some someone who is, you know. Doesn't work in the corporate world, doesn't understand business sales and marketing. They may well express it through things like music and art and things like that. They're the gifts that they bring. And I think that's why some of these big corporates have suddenly woken up because they, they totally get it. They understand. And I think you kind of reference this point and I absolutely agree with it. All the idiots that cry about inclusion. Oh, everything's inclusionary. It's inclusionary for inclusion's sake. When actually what it's about is bringing in different backgrounds, different perspectives, because guess what? That's, that solves problems. And when you solve problems, you're probably doing good things for your, for your customers. That's the, the real kind of cold hard benefit of having a diverse team, which isn't just you know, race, gender, culture, but this is where neurodiversity can sort of come in as well. So in terms of, I think I mentioned kind of autism, and I read a piece the other week about um, EY. I always get their name wrong. It's, is it Ernest Young? Ernest Ernest Young? Ernst Young? E-R-N-S-T. Young. Yeah, so they have made, they have advertised very heavily for the fact that they um, are have changed their recruitment process, their yeah. physical office space to accommodate people with autism and AST, because they probably want hardcore analysts that, Will not stop. All they will do is dig into the to the topic at hand and and become obsessed with it. You're starting to see that in in certain um corporates. I think the marketing world has been a little bit ahead of the game because there's such a big overrepresentation of of yeah. neurodivergence. Um, well in it's this
0: interesting. we' We're starting to see Silicon Valley take in economists now. and I think what's going to be really, very interesting is, how the future of work will change and the smartest companies, the fastest, most agile companies will be recruiting globally for diversity and range of experience, background, expertise, neurodiversity, different demographics. You you start thinking about the potential of having the entire 7.3 billion population as your recruitment market instead of Croydon
1: <laughs> yeah exactly
0: um, yeah the, the the scope and the technology is starting to come together and you know a lot of these people on the spectrum I guess are creating it where there is the ability to genuinely cooperate to create fair compensation schemes you know one of the things that, that your partner Marcus and I are working on within the ecosystem that we're putting together is creating the conditions so that a diverse team of independent contractors come together and get paid fairly for their contribution using smart contracts so that you can agree up front when certain milestones are hit, the money that the customer has put in escrow is then paid out and triggered because you hit milestones. Now, th- you know this kind of thing couldn't have happened pre-pandemic because the technology wasn't out there. And also, we didn't have the conditions where now people are starting to think In a much more diverse way. So I'm really curious. How did the how did uh, you as an ADHD experience the pandemic, and uh, how did other ADHD experiences uh, go through the pandemic? And was it good
1: for you? Yes, there's a couple of interesting things here. So I I actually I was a late stage diagnosis. I, I got my diagnosis in the first year of the pandemic, and the reason for that is I went through like a pretty hard burnout. And what I realized, like working with a, uh, a, like a burnout therapist, so she she understood AHD, she understood burnout, realized that I'd, I'd sort of gone through lots of sort of mini burnout cycles and that I'd kept it to myself and I'd managed to sort of self-manage like the burnout on the basis, of, like not sharing it on the basis of that it would be perceived as weak and that I was uh, ineffectual at my job, which I you know, completely changed that, that thinking now. So it was an interesting time for me because you sort of dealing with multiple things, but I, I took the time out of the business that I needed and did therapy with this woman sort of once a week, which was fantastic because she sort of helped me understand the condition. And really, I think, think in hindsight, kind of retrospectively analyze all the things that had happened in life and get me to reframe them because Kids that are undiagnosed, if they don't get the ADHD diagnosis at school, you can imagine the labels that they're given. It is a common symptom to procrastinate, you know, to to put put things off that don't interest you. Well, what's you know, what are you as a child if you don't have a condition? You, you know, you're lazy, you're stupid, you're all these different things. So you kind of carry that baggage with you. So one of the things she did during lockdown was kind of help me like reframe and I guess relabel some of these things that had happened in life that. I'd taken personally that are kind of, you know, sat, sat upstairs as part of the emotional baggage, if you will. That was a really interesting experience. Other ADHD, as I know, just to speak to your point about the, what you're trying to set up, a lot of them became consultants. And the reason for that, I think, is interesting. It's because, as one friend said to me, I get to middle management because I join a company, I, I, I accelerate faster than anyone. I get to the point where I butt heads with leadership. And then I think, right, I've got to leave, because you suddenly I, I discover things about leadership or possibly the true values of the organization, and it doesn't sit well with me. And he said, I think, right, this is a pile of shit. I'm leaving. Uh... So he decided to be a consultant, because then he doesn't have to deal with that. And I think people who are neurodiverse have absolutely realized for the last few years that being a consultant, although is harder in some respects, you've got to do your own BD. Not easy, but at least it gives you the, the, the freedom and, and that sort of you're being able to kind of manage life on your own terms.
0: Well, one of my inspirations, Jerry Weinberg, described himself as unemployable and fireproof. Uh, which is global, <laughs> but I'm very happy to carry. And I suspect a lot of ADHDers have, certainly consultants do. Okay, because th- this really speaks to something else that you mentioned, which is that a lot of the- these millennials, 25 to 34, have had the support. So they've been able to excel. And now they're butting heads. And I am seeing this trend. I saw a study on Friday last week that 73% of US employees intend to find a new job before the end of this year or have already tried. 73%. 72% of technology employees across every discipline are expected by the end of this year to have tried to find a new job. That was from a Talent LMS study, and they're the world's largest LMS platform. So you know, it's it's good verifiable data, and we're seeing this great resignation has now been turned. What are McKinsey calling it now? The great attrition. There is this backlash, and I think it's partly social because uh, the boomers have retired, pretty much all of them. The Gen Xers who did well during the 80s and 90s uh, in financial services and in IT and in the noughties, they retiring early. So I think Mm. there's a bit of a vacuum. And there's a shift in thinking. Um, Now, the problem is that the money is still in the hands of the Gen Xers and boomers. Okay, so uh, the pandemic didn't do a good enough job of culling us. There is still going to be that butting of heads. But I think there is definitely a movement, and I'm seeing it in a lot of businesses that are starting up now, that they have a purpose. And employees are changing jobs precisely because they want to grow. They want to become the person that they believe they could be. Now, there is often an overbearing sense of entitlement and um, their ambition is significantly beyond their current grasp. And so I think one thing that that generation definitely needs to learn is to slow down and reflect more, because my generation didn't do that particularly mm-hmm. well. And as a result, what we tended to do was fire and then issue a warning. Mm-hmm. And hence the reason why I think we've got to this point where it's so destructive. Mm-hmm. Uh, so many people have had said, you know, enough is enough.
1: It's an interesting thing. I guess it's one of those topics that we're going to like add narratives to it from different subjects. And I agree with everything you said. I think for someone who's a Gen Z, we can also think about what they've been looking at as well. What have they seen? They've seen a sort of like destruction in our main institutions, right? A kind of lack of honesty and transparency. They're they're the generation that have to deal with climate change. We've like stuck that in their lap and gone. Yeah, we brought you into this world. We love you, but here's the biggest fucking problem humanity's ever seen. Good luck. And they probably look out into that world. They're trying to understand how business works. What's the, some of the first things they see? Things like greenwashing, corporate values that don't account for shit. Um, I I can kind of understand. For some of them, how, how their psychology is what it is, not necessarily the entitlement piece, but possibly the, the kind of gusto, the anger, the wanting to change the world. It's an interesting one. I think what, you, what you've said, I think, is absolutely the case. And then within that, I think that there's going to be kids that, you know, they've probably learned in school more about things like, you know, basic mental health, emotional intelligence, like the EQ skills. They maybe get into a, a corporate role and they don't see that. They don't, they don't see being able to, uh, that anyone is in that organization gives a shit about their, their mental health and what's going on. Not, not all corporates. I don't want to like sort of, you know, uh, label across the board here with a broad stroke. That's not fair, but all of this kind of feeds into this idea of, well, I, I need to be doing my own thing because then, then I've got some semblance of control. I'm kind of master of my own ship. Um, I can control my time and guess what, if I'm having a shit day, Maybe I can take the day off, you know what I mean?
0: This I think is gonna be really interesting because as I look into the future over the next 20, 30 years, I think we're going through a period of massive turmoil. We're coming to the end of a 250-year cycle. The American Empire is coming to its end. It's you know, it's still got a lot of life left in it, and it's got a lot of fight left in it. China is on the rise. And interestingly enough, China has a population problem, but not the one we expect. The problem that they have is the one child policy means that they don't have enough people to sustain a war against the Americans in 30 years' time, Um, but they do now. So I suspect Xi understands this and is looking at what they can do in order to shore up their empire, because they definitely have expansionist plans, but they tend to do it through soft power. And they're surrounded by this ring of steel. You know, there are islands in the Pacific that are sinking under the weight of the ordnance that the Americans are aiming at the Chinese. So they they do have a natural reason to be nervous. But what I'm really interesting uh, interested in is um, there was a little glimmer of hope a few years ago, and I know she is an incredibly device, not, not divisive figure, a, a figure that has created, uh, that polarization has been created around. But my favorite ADHD experiencer, uh, Greta Thunberg, humiliating and shaming the UN in a second language, incidentally, and doing it with such passion and such righteousness. I thought that was a wonderful moment. And I think that was a turning point because it sent a signal to everybody else in her generation, that they could say something, and they could be heard. And I'm hopeful that that will continue to build. I'm disappointed at how people like Trump and others chose to bully a teenager. But but she was bloody right. And it was just a moment. And I thought, that will go down in history. That's a turning point.
1: Yeah, I mean, t- just to take that in order, I think um, there's a lot of commentary about like the rise of China and and how it pulled itself out of poverty is is a marvel. The amount of people sort of working in the paddy fields, then then suddenly working in offices over like a 50, 60 year period is remarkable. Yeah, they've gone
0: through 97% of their population, sorry, 60% of their population being in poverty uh, to 97% not being in poverty in 60 years. Now, that is a phenomenal feat.
1: It it absolutely is. There's problems with that sort of like um, that ruling structure. When you look in, um, I think it was 2015 when the Chinese government. uh, sort of relax the laws about being able to to to, to take money out of China. Um, they saw an absolute sort of avalanche of Chinese middle classes trying to trying to pull their money out of China and get it across to America, which I think I think kind of speaks volumes. It's sort of a bit of a a, a two fingers holding the mirror up to the Communist Party as to as to what the Chinese middle classes actually want. I don't believe that on a long enough timeline, the sort of dictatorial governments that you get in places like Russia and China can succeed because you, you know, those types of hierarchies. They essentially crush creativity. They, they yeah. crush free thinking. I mean, well, it's, I, it's
0: like enterprises that after a while, read, read a book called Loonshots by Safi Bakal because uh, it describes exactly this dynamic. Uh, in companies, they start off entrepreneurial and creative and everyone has a voice. And then there comes a point, a tipping point, where managers start to shoot down good ideas because it behooves them to stick with the status quo. It's easier, it's more comfy, it's familiar, it's lazy, and they're paid and they're fat, dumb, and
1: happy yeah and it's kind of like how good is your decision making if you think about like putin now where people have to i imagine be extremely careful uh, and redact what they say to him so ultimately you're not you how can you be making correct and realistic decisions if everyone's afraid to give you that information again it doesn't mean that they can't cause destruction and cause serious problems for their enemies but again long enough timeline that versus a you know relatively free democracy where there's like free movement of capital, creative thinking, really smart problem solvers, Mm, I know who I'm picking. If you talk to investors, if you talk to people who are really good at picking individual stocks, uh, one of the things I'll say is they stay far away from Chinese companies. Because ultimately, they say they can't trust them. They don't trust the numbers. And there's been a lot of Chinese companies that have been set up. They sort of floated on stock markets, and they just turn out to be vapor. There's nothing there. You can't get away with that if you if you uh, float a a company in America or the UK or Europe uh, on any of our uh, indexes. You just can't do it. There's too much red tape, you know, and too much transparency. And that's kind of the key word. There is a lack of transparency there. So. I, I'm one of those people that probably watched all the TED talks in 2012 on the rise of Chinese power, but I've seen enough talks now on where the holes are for me to think, hmm, uh, I, I'm not sure. I'm not so sure they're the powerhouse that that everyone was giving them credit for. Um, but anyway, I, I rabbited on about. We were talking about um, Greta Thunberg, and yes, I totally agree. A lot of leaders made absolute fools of themselves by criticising a child, and I think it'd be really interesting to take all the people that criticised her. And then map that against their donors in terms of corporate donors, where's that money coming from? How is that affecting them as a mouthpiece? But what you say is interesting about she was unafraid, right? The way she kind of speaks truth to power. My best friend is Asperger's, which is a sort of form of autism. He is the most honest person I know. He is half German, half Afghani, probably one of the best PhD chemists in Europe. Absolutely smart as a whip. and has never lied to me. I've even tried to catch him out. He can't do it. And there's something about, it's a, I think it's a mixture of these, some of these autistic traits in that he speaks what's on his mind. He doesn't have huge amounts of friends and he's had to really train himself to be careful in social situations because he, he will say what's on his mind. I love it because I consider myself honest and straightforward and I love people who are the same because I know where I stand with them. And he's definitely someone, I, I upset my girlfriend by, by telling her that I would more likely give him the passwords to my bank accounts than her.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and she was really upset by this. Um, really? Because, because uh, I, I don't think he's corruptible. I just, right. I just don't. And I think they're the sort of traits that you, you see. You kind of see that, I think, in Greta as well. She speaks with in her mind and she's, she's not afraid.
0: Well, I think on teams, you need people like that as well. Because if we're going to come up with really effective, creative solutions that are sustainable and do not have unintended negative consequences or very few of them, and they integrate with the other parts of our the moving parts of our business, our other systems, processes, our culture, our people, you, know, you have to think about all of these things. If you want your systems and your decisions to work out uh, well, the problem that I see is that so many people are making decisions based on incredibly incomplete information. Now, when I look at the average CRM, there is around 12 to 20% that is halfway decent information. But mm. you're making all of your important financial, recruitment, investment decisions on the basis of 80 to 88% incomplete or incorrect information. That's well, a terrifying thought.
1: It is. It's so interesting you mentioned that. So we have a data integrity issue. I think we have an overreliance on technology. I think we have an obsession with metrics that don't matter. Yeah, it's basically Goodhart's law, right? It's that the metrics have become the final destination, and I think the more technology you add into your stack, potentially the the more kind of acronyms and bullshit metrics you end up reporting on, even if they're inconsequential.
0: Well, Rob, th- this is really important to uh, for people to recognise, and if you haven't recognised this, pay attention. In the last seven years, average quota attainment of salespeople has plummeted from 60 65% to below 14 is rapidly heading towards 30%. Now, this is at the same time, twelve to 14,000 technology companies have appeared from nowhere. And focused on MarTech, sales tech, sales enablement, uh, customer success, um, you name it, CRM. You've got data organizations coming out of every orifice. You've got the explosion of armies of SDRs, armies of email factories, armies of digital advertising producers, content producers. And all of this noise has deafened our customers to Mm -hmm. any of our messaging. So what the hell?
1: When they come in and sell, because I've sat in front of their pictures, it is all about the measurement. It's all about here's what you can do with your data. Here's, here's the measurement piece. But as you say, it's only as good as the, as the data you put in. It's the old classic CS adage: garbage in, garbage out. And people get really enamoured with that. And, and you're right. Like it doesn't surprise me that sales quotas are down. People aren't hitting targets because they, they want the machine to do it for them. It's Oh, you know, I don't have to go and visit that person 200 miles away when I can just send out a big old sequence of emails and I'll, I'll, that will go into report of successful touch points. You know, that that customer's happy, clearly, because they've hit some bullshit metric that we've come up with internally. When actually, it's all about talking to your customers, listening to your customers, getting in front of them. You know, go, you know it's the old, it's what the old advertising gurus did in the 60s. They built their businesses on lunches and dinners. People see that as some old-fashioned crude thing of, oh, hours just spent talking with your customer. Bloody hell. Why do that when we've got all this technology? No, that's the exact fucking thing you should be doing, in my in my humble opinion. In my humble uh, you,
0: opinion. You, you are absolutely on the money. It's the fucking Perrier generation that I blame. And you know, you started looking at the MPs' expenses. I don't mind MPs having long lunches if they're actually working in service to the country. I do object to them taking long lunches if all they're doing is raping it, which is basically what it feels like at the moment. But that's well, a- it, it,
1: it's not what it feels like. It's absolutely what it is. It's, it's and, horrific. And the evidence is there. And I we hope we won't go down a politics hole just in case, but. You saw this when I think in, in this country, and maybe our American listeners, we might lose them a little bit when Ian Hislop was in one of these, I forget what the. Parliamentary Select
0: these. Committees.
1: Yes. And he was yeah. talking about what's written down when people come to visit MPs and how there's an absolute lack of information. And he kind of got them to admit things that they. And they have so little shame and so little moral fibre that when they're there going, oh, but I was given, I was given lots of football tickets, and but guess what? I, I didn't keep them for myself. I give them to my aide. And Hislop's like, you could have given them to a nurse. Or why the fuck are you taking them at all? And so that that evidence is there as far as and I'm And what
0: concerned. did you do as a result of getting them? Exactly. And and, and this I think really speaks to this whole issue that no one touches on, which I, I'm, I'm offended by. I, I, if, if you type in hashtag sales ethics, the only articles that come up are two that I wrote complaining about the fact that no one talks about fucking sales ethics. Ethics has, uh, it doesn't appear as a topic. And I think there should be a groundswell of discussion around this. Because what we have done in the last 40 years is destroy capitalism. I believe. I think Jack Welsh, Milton Friedman, and all of their ilk have created, have destroyed capitalism. And what we should be doing is trying to recover it, because with it comes democracy. We need to make capitalism fairer. It's not just about competition. We can cooperate. In fact, that's what put humanity to the top of the food chain, our ability to cooperate. Yes, competition is uh, good in that it creates friction, but why not do that collaboratively and cooperatively instead of trying to kill each other and carry sharp knives or have very sharp elbows? Find what we have in common with other people instead of trying to find the differences. And what baffles me is that the economics of the old industrial age model and I understand it in those old days when you hadn't done the research and it all made sense when you know, you'd know just come out killing each other with swords and cannon. But nowadays, we know that if we cooperate, if we get diverse groups of people in, we end up with 500% more profit per employee because these people are highly engaged because we've got good managers with good systems and good processes and the the right infrastructure so these people can thrive. Uh, What we also know is that compound annual share price growth, based on a study of the S&P 500 between 2010 and 2016, showed that organizations that had highly engaged employees enjoyed 316% year-on-year higher share price growth. So, If you're out there trying to peddle the lie that you're in this to serve shareholder value, and you do not have diverse teams, you do not have a range of people with uh, very diverse backgrounds, neurodiversity, color, age, gender, demographics, experience, and some job hoppers, some uh, uh, lifers, all of that in your teams, then chances are you are doing your shareholders a massive disservice. And every one of your employees and every one of your customers and every one of your partners to you. And you shouldn't be in business.
1: 100%. And I'm, I'm glad you like named all the stakeholders there as well. Because you're right. It's ultimately, customers are what keeps us in business. And they're the ones who, who suffer. But it, there, there's so many dots, I think, for people to connect. It reminds me, I think, it's the McNamara fallacy, uh, the Vietnam general who just, um, he focused on like one metric during the Vietnam War. Because we live in a world where we're trying to get we're trying to get everyone to be more data focused. It's not just the data, it's the evidence, right? We kind of speak to that as we were talking about technology. You have gotta find the right data and find the right insight and do something actionable with it. Sometimes there there are these almost sort of intangible areas or these areas there that, that, that leadership potentially ignore at their peril, which is about kind of connecting some of these more difficult dots. And, you know, woe is me. You have to engage system Two Brain a lot more to figure this shit out. And we all know that we we don't like doing that. But yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And it's great that the data, um, all the, all the evidence is backing up the case for productivity and success from diverse teams.
0: The other thing is 40% lower staff turnover. I mean, yeah. in this market, if you are not suffering from skill shortages, you're very, very lucky. If you Hmm. have a vacancy, you're probably struggling to fill it, because that seems to be the case. And in fact, if I recall correctly, a few months ago on LinkedIn, there were eight vacancies for every applicant in sales. Now, you Hmm. know, if you're competing in a market like that, you had better become halfway decent.
1: Well, this speaks to a point. As a leader, as a manager, as an investor. Absolutely. I mean, it it speaks to a point about This whole thing of making these changes, it's the organizations, how many will do it because they're doing it from a place of authenticity, because they they know and feel it's the right thing to do, versus those that kind of fall into that like greenwashing type thinking where I'll do it because it's good for business. It's a pick in the box.
0: Yeah. Those companies, um, the employees very quickly find them out because their behavior, how we behave around here when X happens is a fantastic line of inquiry. So how do we behave around here when there is an opportunity to sell something to a customer that they don't need? Mm. What do we do? What's our default setting on that? We don't fucking sell it to them. That's the only correct answer. But you'd be disappointed, but not surprised by the spectrum of answers that one will get. Because people don't think long term. What we've done is we've sacrificed relationship and effectiveness. For efficiency and automation, and the illusion of control.
1: Yeah, and, and on top of that, how many organisations in the past seven months had their you know financial backers, the VCs, the institutions, turn around and say, right, it's no longer growth, guys. We're <laughs> optimising for profit now.
0: I know they're so screwed because they've got you know they've got no leaders, no managers, and no salespeople and no marketers who know how to sell or market for profit. You can't take three years or eighteen months to get a profit. You've got to make a profit in three months or six months or within the year at least.
1: Which pushes the ethical boundaries, right?
0: Well, it could do. It but could what do. It, also does, uh, it should do. Is focus you on your medium term pipeline. If you focus on your medium and long term pipeline, in six to nine months, you will never, ever, ever have a short term pipeline problem again. And it will give you the opportunity to get exposure to many people within the account. So you can multi-thread and build not many relationships. So when they move from passive to active looking, you're the only show in town. You increase your conversion rate. You do less work. You close more for more money. And you set yourself up for expansion sales, which is 64 times more profitable than new business. Stop being stupid.
1: To understand what you've just said, they, they need to be half smart and, and have that growth mindset. And I think the, the problem is if they've had it easy, if it's a collection of mediocre employees, because let's face it, I think getting, getting growth next to profit, especially coming from the perspective of as a marketeer working in a digital marketing organization, is far easier driving just pure growth over, over pure profit. So if, if they don't have the growth mindset, if none of this thinking is in place, it does beg the question, what are you going to do from a, from a marketing and sales Perspective in terms of how you are speaking to customers. The, it is the idea of honesty. I've I've often wondered these big MBA programs in places like Harvard, you know, whether you know all, all the kind of top one percent of society go when they're teaching business ethics. What the fuck do they teach?
0: Them? They don't. Well, they business ethics is then um, a gloss subject for most of them because if you look at the over preponderance and over biased towards the financial it doesn't take into account any of the other stuff uh, i mean if you look at the typical way vcs value a business it's on revenue pipeline and new logos uh, it's got fuck all to do with people it's got nothing to do with the customer it's got everything to do with how they can squeeze a higher valuation so that they can get more investors to invest in their next fund yeah, it's the it, merry-go-round, it's got right? Nothing to do with the investors' best interests. It's got everything to do with the general partner's best interests.
1: Yeah, make that carry. That's what it's all about. And the um, 2%. We love the 2%. Yeah.
0: If we sell the next fund, that's all the holidays and beer Ritz and in you know, Seychelles and all those other fun places. Actually, Seychelles is a bit down market by comparison, to be <laughs> Ritz. Um, sorry about that. So all of you extreme point one 0- percenters 0- wouldn't want to offend you. Rob, we've come to time. Tell me this, a victory you wouldn't want to repeat.
1: Oh, a victory I wouldn't want to repeat. I, I remember working on a deal a few years ago, and I think I was going through a burnout cycle at the time, but didn't know it. We got the deal over the line, but my word, I just I just have bad memories of this feeling really arduous. And I, I remember coming back after the final, final meeting. You know, you know how some deals where they're like, right, th- this is our final meeting. We're all going to make a decision here, and then there's like five others. I remember coming home and um, just going upstairs lying in bed and I just sat there in in the darkness and silence for 4 or 5 hours kind of kind of recovering I I never want to go back there again that's for sure I ne- I never want to experience burnout I think is the simple answer it's okay. fucking horrible I wouldn't yeah. wish it on my worst enemy
0: Okay so on that happy note <laughs> is there anywhere people can get help that you found useful if they are suffering from burnout or if they believe that they may have ADHD or some neurodiverse condition?
1: Yeah, I think, well, if you're in the UK, I think just Googling ADHD, you're going to find the main sort of charities and bodies that represent this. You can do some kind of short tests, which give you an indication. It's not a full diagnosis, of course, but it will just give you an idea. If anything you've heard today, or maybe you know someone close to you, you sort of feel could have ADHD. That's, that's a good starting point. I would say in the UK that it's massively under resourced. If you are unfortunate enough that you have to go through the NHS, the waiting lists are horrific. It's very, it's very sad to see, but you know it's an underfunded institution. If you have got the money, my recommendation is absolutely go private. For our American friends, it's an easier deal. Um, so again, ADHD, burnout, any mental health disorder. As long as they've got the the coverage on their insurance, they'll they'll have much better access to healthcare professionals than than we do. And I, I would just say, on a final note, and hopefully this is a positive note, I think anything related, any any mental health issue that you think you may have, my absolute advice is to deal with it now. Even if it's something like I'm drinking wine five days a week, but it used to be two. But guess what? All my friends are, my peers are, I think it's fine. Anything like that, if you, if you get that hint bubbling up from the subconscious that, is is—is this really a good thing? Is this something I should be doing? Is this serving me well? My advice is, is to go and deal with it now. Don't sit in denial and don't sit on it hoping that it will get better. Deal with it straight away because your life will be much easier if you do. Excellent advice. Rob, how can people get hold of you? I'd say on LinkedIn, if they look for Rob Morley, Fountain, you'll find me there. Uh, I get messages every day on various things. Email rob at fountainpartnership.co.uk. So they're the best places to find me. Excellent. Rob Morley, thank you. Thank you, Marcus.
0: So this is Marcus Kaki signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful, helpful, insightful, then please like, comment, share, subscribe, and please tag someone who needs to hear the, this message around uh, neurodiversity, ADHD, and all the good things that can come from it. Also, if you are looking for some help and you're sick and tired of uh, being told that you need to manipulate people, pressure people, and you really want to find a way that you sell naturally, then DM me either on LinkedIn or Marcus at last In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.